welcome. This is Craig Applegath, and this is the 21st Century Imperative Podcast, the podcast series that explores the insights and approaches of scientists, designers, planners, engineers, business entrepreneurs, and other successful change makers who are finding effective ways to meet the three critical challenges posed by the 21st Century Imperative. These are how will we continue to live on our planet without destroying our biosphere? How will we repair and regenerate the environmental damage we have already caused? And how will we adapt to the escalating impacts of climate change? Each episode will feature an interview with an individual whom I think you will find not only inspiring, but also very relevant to helping you answer the question, what can I do to meet the challenges of the 21st century imperative? This episode is the second installment of our new series of 21st century clean tech episodes. For regular listeners, you'll remember that we introduced Connor Reed in episode 27. And then Connor and I discussed his conversation with Mike Andrade, CEO of Morgan Solar, in episode 29. In these clean tech episodes, Connor is bringing stories focused on clean technologies through conversations with business leaders, entrepreneurs, researchers, and anyone who's leading the energy transition. Welcome back, Connor. So what's the focus of today's episode? Today, we're talking about the world of geothermal heating and cooling and why it's going to be one of the fastest growing industries in the green building space over the next few decades. Back in the summer, I sat down with my good friend, Matt Tekarik, who's the president at Subterra Renewables here in Toronto, Ontario. Subterra develops, owns, and operates geothermal assets for mid to high rise buildings. And for listeners, the background context for this conversation is that in our clean tech episodes, we're trying to spotlight companies and industry leaders who are or could have an outsized impact on decarbonizing the building sector. When we look at jurisdictions like Ontario that have relatively clean electrical grids, most of the greenhouse gas emissions therefore are associated with buildings and come from space heating. Yeah, that's it exactly, Craig. And if we dig into the numbers, according to the carbon emissions inventory for the GTA, the Greater Toronto Area, which was produced by the Atmospheric Fund, buildings are the largest source of GHG emissions in the GTA. They account for just under 43% of all recorded emissions. Transportation is the number two source, accounting for 34%, and industrial uses are in third place at 19% of emissions. But, you know, here's the important part. Of the 24 megatons of emissions that came from buildings in 2018, 92% of that came from fossil fuels used for space and water heating. The other 8% came from electricity. So basically, uh, space and water heating is the big thing to figure out. And that's what Matt's going to talk about. That's it, yeah. And, and, And now that's not the case in all provinces and all states. It is the case here in Ontario. Uh, But for example, in in Washington, D.C., electricity is almost 10 times more carbon intensive than electricity in Ontario. But also in Washington, D.C., they've committed to fully decarbonizing their electrical grid by 2032. So in actuality, those emissions will disappear without developers and building owners really having to do a thing. More and more jurisdictions are making similar commitments to decarbonize their electricity sector, too. So in those cases, the thing that still remains is emissions from on-site combustion for space heating and hot water. And the way I think about this is that when people think about renewable energy, yes, think about PV panels, think about wind turbines, which we do, but also, and almost more importantly, we should be thinking about heat pumps, like geothermal systems that can electrify and decarbonize our building heating systems. That's a great background to have going into our conversation with Matt and a good segue for you to tell listeners more about Matt's background. So Matt Tekarik is the president of Subterra Renewables, a renewable energy developer who designs, builds, owns, and operates geothermal heating and cooling systems across North America with the goal of significantly reducing greenhouse gas emissions and ultimately reaching net zero building operation. He has previous experience working as a building energy consultant, developing whole building energy models, conducting energy audits, and creating carbon reduction strategies for new and existing buildings and building portfolios. He's also a sessional instructor at Ryerson University, where he leads courses and seminars in sustainability, building science, and energy modeling. My personal background with Matt is that he actually recruited me to my first job out of university at an engineering consulting firm. We talk about it a little bit in our conversation. I think that he's a bit of a jack of all trades in my mind. He's been successful in the engineering world. He's been successful in the business world, now with Subterra, and even in the academic world as an instructor. Why I think he's such a good fit for this podcast, why I wanted to have him on, 
is that he is the best person I could think of to talk about practical solutions to bringing geothermal systems to market. Well, I know well from the buildings that I'm currently designing that heat pumps are a key part of the zero carbon strategy. So I will be very interested to hear your conversation with Matt. So without further ado, let's queue up the interview. Here's my conversation with Matt Tekarik, president of Subterra Renewables. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Connor. We're hopefully going to cover a lot of ground on geothermal and Subterra. But to start, can you tell me a little bit about where you grew up and where you went to school? I grew up in a city called St. Albert, Alberta, which is on the northwest side of Edmonton. It's it's basically like saying you're from Toronto when you live in Scarborough or Mississauga. It's it's connected. It's it's right there. Went to school in Edmonton proper, University of Alberta, and loved growing up there, but um, wanted to to see what else is out there. And in 2012, ended up going back to school after my undergrad. I had never been to Toronto, but thought the opportunity was going to be interesting. And my girlfriend and I packed up our car and drove across the country, which was a a cool experience. I thought I was going to be a structural engineer. That was my plan. And then sort of realized that it was largely figured out. Like there's certainly cool things to do in, in structures, but we have known how to put a structure up for the better part of Know, 50 or 100 years and, and they're still standing. And I started getting interested in the world of building science, which was sort of a new term to me at the time. And the world of building science can mean a bunch of different things. But to me, it sort of comes down to heat, air, moisture, and energy transport. You know, Building physics is another way to look at it. And there's a really big and interesting Rubik's cube here to solve because we want to save energy and we want to use sustainable materials. But at the same time, we still need to make the building look beautiful and we want to make sure that people enjoy the experience of the building. We want to make sure that it stands. We want to make sure that it's not going to burn down. All these sort of factors need to fit into this this puzzle. And so I got really interested in in that world and yeah, I ended up applying to school here and got in into Ryerson and did a master's there in the building science program between 2012 and 15. And once I was there, you know, did all the the, the building physics stuff, but really got interested in energy efficiency and, and how energy is used in a building. And that's sort of what really started me into this career path and into this world that we're in now. So after graduating from Ryerson, you, I think you you went into consulting. You did that for a few years and then you've made your move to the other side of the industry and now you're at Subterra. So right out of school, out of my master's program, where I started actually doing some consulting work and ended up launching a company an energy consulting firm out of school, which you know is is sort of atypical from the path that most people take. And so we were, you know, we we had this cool young company. We we raised, or I shouldn't say raised. We we were able to win grants. We were very good at at collecting money from Ryerson and from the the government and stuff. And we won close to probably a hundred thousand bucks in seed money. So we operated that company for a few years. And again, you know, I made the conscious decision to go backwards and say, hey, this is really interesting to me. I really want to understand how businesses work. And, you know, my, my worst case scenario is that we fail and I'm a very employable engineer and I, I get to, to go back to where I would have been had I not given this a shot. And so we, we took the leap and, and, you know, we were, we were modestly successful, but we, you know, ended up both taking a job after us all said and done at, at Morrison Hirschfield, which is a mid-sized consulting firm across Canada and into the States. And with that experience from running my own shop learned a lot about how you know how to how to sell and how to do bookkeeping and how marketing works and all that all that sort of stuff that i think is is makes for a really really strong member of a consulting team even though maybe my engineering prowess was not <laughs> where it should have been running an engineering company but so i kind of did it backwards landed landed at uh, at morrison hirschfield worked there for a few years which is where you and i met and did that for a number of years before making the jump to Subterra. And I, I think the reason it's important to just set that background is I was really growing fed up with the, the business model of consulting, let's call it, where you're trading time for dollars. By definition, that's what consulting is. And to get more dollars or to be more profitable, it, it often meant working more hours and, and grinding and, and all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, we were consultants and we had a deliverable that often looked like some sort of report. And that report often got put on somebody's desk and never was was actioned. Or or we would say, here's this this great way you can get 
25% energy savings and they go, great, that's too expensive. We're going to do this lesser version that's going to save us 5%, but cost X less or whatever. And so I was starting to get a little bit fed up with, with our ability or my ability to affect actual change and, and actually implement these strategies that had meaningful carbon and energy savings. And so when I went to Subterra, and, and I realize we're kind of putting the cart before the horse here, but I'll, I'll introduce that more formally in a second. I got closer to the decision-making, closer to the money, so to speak, and and really was able to deploy projects, deploy capital against these things that we were talking about and, and consulting on and trying to get across the line. But this change in, in business model and shift in mindset, I guess, have been now able to, like I said, actually get some of these projects done and, and built and actually impacting some some very significant carbon savings. So that's kind of the lead up to Subterra. And I'll give the introduction here and I'll just kind of go up one level and talk about STS Renewables. So, so STS Renewables is a group of companies and STS Renewables is a geothermal services company. And within that, we've got sort of two primary arms. On the one side is Subterra Renewables, which we call ourselves a renewable energy developer. So that means that we are the hub of the activity to get projects deployed. And, and that looks like you know finding clients to work with, often new building developers, managing the, the engineering consultants, bringing the drilling to the table and, and getting the construction done, bringing capital to the table and funding the projects and then owning those projects and maintaining them for a long-term agreement. And so, so really what we're producing is, is energy as a service is, is what, we're, what we're talking about here, where uh, you know another way to think about it is, is like a DBFM model, where again, we're design, building, owning and operating the system over, over usually a 30-year contract. And so again, you know, we're, 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 we're doing all of that work and, and making an investment alongside of the building developer. And we, we can maybe talk more about how the, the business model works here in a second, but we're making that investment, which is both a sound financial investment as well as, as an investment in, in carbon reduction and, and carbon reducing technology. So that's the Subterra side of the group. That's sort of my primary world. I oversee the operations of, of Subterra. On the other side is a group called Turnkey Site Solutions that we've merged with. So Turnkey is is really the construction arm. So the Turnkey is the, are the guys that are on site doing the drilling, putting the systems into the ground. And so we've got six drills that are out in the field putting geothermal systems into the ground. And that whole group is trying to implement geothermal systems as needed by the developer, by the builder. So by just being a, a, you know, energy as a service, you can tend to be a, a hammer looking for a nail where, you know, take my financing, let me provide this service for you, et cetera. Some of the developers are, are saying, and, and particularly um, institutional owners, apartment builders, guys who are looking to invest in the long term are saying, well, hey, I, I mean, I don't need your capital. I've got, I've got my own capital. I like the technology. I like the investment profile. I want to do it myself. We say, sure, no problem. We'll still sit at the table. We can do a design build model or we'll still do all of the same service, drill the thing, do the design, basically hold your hand through the process, but you get to make the investment yourself. And so that's sort of the, the STS umbrella as a whole. Mm-hmm. I want to circle back actually on, on something that you mentioned when you were working at MH, when we were working at MH, kind of this dichotomy between energy savings, carbon savings that are capital intensive versus the the developer really just trying to narrow in on the, the lowest cost solution. And so I think this is kind of what I, why I wanted to have this conversation and what I wanted to highlight about Subterra's business model, one option of the business model. Could you speak a little bit on you know how you might square that seemingly opposing force of opportunities for life cycle cost savings with geothermal, but you know high capital cost? What do you bring to the table with that? Right. So when we're doing a comparison or, or just broadly speaking, geothermal systems tend to be more expensive to install, particularly when we're talking about a comparison of what I consider to be a, a conventional hydronic system with a, a boiler and chiller, more expensive to install, but cheap to operate. And so talking you know, rough numbers, we, we might be one and a half to two X more expensive than, than sort of the competing heating and cooling plant. But then there ends up being significant savings over that that life cycle from a number of things, right? You're, you probably obviously, well, we, we should maybe circle back and talk about how the systems work, but there's certainly savings from the energy cost. And that's probably the one that most people would, would assume. But when you open up the actual life cycle 
cost assessment, you have a number of other factors. So things like saving from from water use reductions. Yeah, water use reductions from a cooling tower in both makeup water and water treatment. And then the other sort of big one is service maintenance and reserving. So when you've got, uh, you know, particularly a, a chiller is a big expensive piece of, of equipment to, to service and maintain and reserve for. If you can eliminate those big expensive moving parts, you save a lot of operating costs in in service maintenance and, and reserving. And so these geothermal systems are, are very simple, right? You plant a bunch of stuff in the, in the ground, which is the expensive part, but then, then they're largely just a few circulating pumps that are moving water around. And so because you've got far fewer moving pieces in the system, you end up having a, a, a set of equipment that's that's much cheaper to operate over over a life cycle. And so, you know, thinking about the business model of that, we hear a lot of folks say that, you know, we, we know geothermal and we know it's a working technology and and we, we get it. But if you are a condominium developer, you're going to go build the, the building, build the system, and you're going to sell units and you're going to recover your investment within the first few years and you're, you're gone. And so that's where energy as a service business model can come in and, and support that because now the developer gets to take the benefit of, of the green energy. So if they're trying to meet a Toronto green standard, they're trying to meet a carbon target, whatever, whatever that is, they get to take advantage of that system. They also usually end up getting a capital savings up front because they no longer have to install that plant equipment. So they have a pro forma that they get to cross their you know boiler chiller or cooling tower off of. And they often usually find some other savings on their penthouse. I mean, this is getting a little specific to these types of high-rise, you know, condo MERB type projects, but usually there's some more benefit on the rooftop now, instead of having all that big equipment that you would traditionally house in your, your mechanical penthouse, you've cut that space usually by about half. We still need to have some equipment up there, an air handler, mascot water system, et cetera. But they usually cut those, those spaces by about half. And so what they find is that there's more room for rooftop amenity, which might take some uh, indoor amenity outdoor or in the more rare case but the home run cases if you can actually put more more saleable area up on top and all of a sudden you know if you can sell for whatever it is and they're going right in toronto 1200 bucks a square foot uh, and maybe you have a few hundred bucks of build-out cost but you're still netting a home run for for you know these developers who are looking for density as, as the name of the game so they they see the the benefit and then for us, we're sort of solving that problem of the upfront capital investment because we're sticking around for for the long term. So you know we're we're making the investment and we retain ownership of the of the asset, which is the thermal energy system. And obviously, we recover our our return over that term of the the agreement. And then on the the you know the last party to this agreement really becomes the condo owner or the, the apartment tenant or whoever it is. The end user. Um, and because again, there's such a, a savings in the long run with the system, uh, the end user also usually realizes a, a small savings. And so when you when you do all that math, uh, the end user again is always, always going to be neutral and oftentimes it can be a little bit ahead. And so they're realizing that savings and particularly as we start thinking about future energy prices and and you know carbon tax that's increasing at a rapid rate, that's going to basically double the cost of of natural gas moving forward. They're going to have some some really good hedging against uh, against those future prices and you know know what the price is going to be from that utility standpoint. Yeah, and actually, this is a question I'm, I've been meaning to ask you. So we're talking about co-benefits here. We're talking about water use reductions and space savings and potential hedging for end users. It's more traditional in Toronto to actually locate all your mechanical equipment on a mechanical penthouse. So obviously here you're you're relocating most of your equipment in, into the parkade or into the lower levels of the building. Have you seen any type of appetite to actually install and then have the ability to occupy as the building is being constructed? Because now with your equipment at the, at the bottom, you can kind of commission as you go, as you construct. You get your envelope going as the building's being constructed. We've seen this in some other markets where it's more traditional to actually locate mechanical equipment in the basement. And developers are actually interested in pre-sales that, that can actually occupy earlier and therefore you know get your, your, a little bit of cash flow earlier in the construction cycle. Is that something that you've heard of at all? We've not done that yet. We've we've I've also heard that. What I would say we tend to find is that it's hard to actually execute on. For example, like there, although you're although you're sort of working your way up from the bottom and, and going up, there is usually still some infrastructure that needs to be in place at, at the roof. And, and I'll give you one example is is a makeup air unit that's providing ventilation. Uh, still, I mean, some guys are well, 
yeah, there, there are more and more uh, designers who are moving to a an HRV type distributed type ventilation as opposed but, to. But hey, even if even if they're doing that, I still see a lot of people put a rooftop makeup air unit that's blasting into the corridors, even if they have ERVs in the suite that can do the same job. And so in cases like that, I mean, until you've got that ventilation to actually ventilate the suite, you can't you can't start start occupying. I think it's also utilized for fire and smoke suppression. And I think there's definitely safety concerns there as well. Yeah. So I've not actually seen that done in this in this market with this building type, but we've thought about it. It's it's sort of one of those things that would be great if you can do it. It's a nice add-on. I want to pause for for definition or terminology. Okay. Yep. So we're talking about geothermal, you know, out West, I think it's a lot more common to use the term geo exchange. There are some developers or some businesses, companies who will go unnamed on this podcast who draw a really hard line between geothermal and geo exchange. Do you use them interchangeably? Do you differentiate between the term geo exchange and geothermal? What should listeners be thinking when, when we're saying geothermal? Right. So yeah, I, I'll, I'll admit I'm, I'm perhaps lazy on, <laughs> on proper naming convention. Geothermal is sort of the ubiquitous catch-all that is sort of colloquial that people hear and talk about and, and know. So it, for the sake of, of speaking to a client or a broad market, we tend to just use the word geothermal. But yeah, like let's let's just be clear. Typically what or what we are talking about is a what you're probably thinking about is a geo exchange system. It's it's really a a heat pump system that's using a geothermal loop or a, a geo exchange loop as a heat source and, and heat sink as a connection to the ground. So maybe I'll just give like the quick primer on the technology. So first of all, what, what we're not talking about in this application here is a geothermal power production type plant where there's no electricity production. Correct. No, no electricity being produced. That certainly is a technology that is possible. I think the the opportunity for that in Canada, I've, I've seen starting to grow a little bit. There's, there's a few projects. And what those guys are doing is they are drilling very deep. We're talking usually a few kilometers down and they're pulling up and I'm going to be a little bit out of my, my depth here, but they're pulling up high temperature water and or steam that can drive a turbine and produce electricity. What we're talking about here is a typically closed loop, scare quotes, shallow geothermal system. We're usually in the depth of, let's call it 500 to 900 feet. Drillers are starting to be more comfortable going deeper and deeper. And we can talk about some of those nuances if that's interesting to you later, but we're drilling down in that sort of range of five to, to 900 feet. And we're, we're installing closed loop piping typically that's encased in grout and connected to a water circulating pump that's basically just circulating water. And the system is producing, or I should say moving more specifically to be technical here, moving heat via uh, vapor compression cycle, the refrigeration cycle between the ground and the building. And so in, in very simple terms, here's, there's, there's sort of two analogies that I like to use. The first one is a, uh, a refrigerator. So when we're talking about the, the refrigeration cycle, the vapor compression cycle, I mean, I, I, you know, for folks who've never thought about this, take a second and think about how does my refrigerator work? How does it make cold? Well, the, the answer is that there's no such thing as, as making cold. We can only remove heat and, and that's the definition of making cold. And so what's happening in your refrigerator is that there's a little compressor on the back of it that's being driven by electrical input such that it is removing the heat from the inside of your refrigerator and rejecting it to the backside. So if you put your hand on the back of the refrigerator, you'll notice that it's hot. And so that's that's what's happening is you're, you're just moving heat from, from one side to the other. And that's exactly what we're doing with these with these geothermal systems. Um, I'll I'll keep using geothermal just because that's the you know my my like I said lazy word of choice. But what we're talking about is this is this refrigeration cycle where the the loops in the ground become the evaporator or the condenser to speak very technically. Uh, but more more broadly, the way that I like to to define it is is as a thermal storage battery where we're using the volume of soil below the the building in the ground to basically store heat over the course of, of the year. So it's it's a thermal storage battery with a one-year charge and discharge cycle. And so if we think about what that looks like and start, let's say in the winter, we're, we're taking the, the ground, which has a natural sort of resting heat to it, ultimately 
energy from the sun radiates to the ground, warms up the ground, et cetera. And once you're down below a certain point, the ground temperature stays very stable. In, in Toronto, uh, it's around 50 degrees Fahrenheit or 10 degrees Celsius. And so we take that heat and we put it into the building to, to heat the building. And so, you know, just thinking about the, the laws of, of physics and thermodynamics, as you remove heat from, from one thing and put it somewhere else, you lower the temperature of that thing you're pulling from. So we pull the heat out of the ground, put it into the building, which lowers the temperature of the ground. And then in the cooling season, when we are cooling the building, which again is really just removing the heat, we pull the heat out of the building and store it back in the ground. And so we, we heat the ground back up. And so if you look at it from the, the standpoint of the building, you're, you're just heating and cooling the building. If you're looking at it from the, the standpoint of the ground, we're also heating and cooling the ground where again, in the winter time, we pull that heat out of the ground. And in the summertime, we, we put it back in the ground. So you have this sort of oscillating curve of, of ground temperature over the year as you as you change the temperature. So that's that's sort of the you know semi-technical description. From an occupant standpoint, from a user standpoint, there's there's no difference. You wouldn't you wouldn't see any difference. Um, you have usually a, a small heat pump in your unit, like you would have normally, and all you do is interface with a the thermostat. Uh, to provide heating and cooling, but really it's 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 no different from a user standpoint. When you press up, it gets hotter, and when you press down, it gets cooler. It's that easy. <laughs> and, yeah, then- and, and I'll and I'll just I'll just say here, like this, you know, what what we're what we're doing here is is not bringing a new technology to market. This this stuff has been in place for for decades, 50, 60 years at least, and we're not doing anything new here. We're just sort of finding a creative way to to put the whole package together and and deliver, you know, what the market is asking for now. Right, which I think leads into the next question, which is if it's been around for 50, 60 years, why are we seeing an uptick in geothermal? And we are. Why are we seeing an uptick in geothermal insulation and interest in geothermal now? So so geothermal systems are two things. One, they are extremely energy efficient. So if if we compare to a conventional combustion system, that being your, your boiler or your furnace, that has an efficiency of 70, 80, 90, 95% nowadays, you're still getting less output than you have going in. So, you know, you put one unit of energy into the system, usually natural gas, and you get 0.95 units of, of heating energy out. The cool thing about these heat pump systems is that because of this refrigeration cycle, these systems become ultra efficient. And when we're talking ultra efficient, we're talking usually something like 400% efficient or 500% efficient, as opposed to your 95% efficiency. So, instead of putting in one unit and getting 0.95 units out, we're putting in one unit of energy and that energy in this case is electricity as opposed to natural gas. But after putting in that one that one unit of energy in, we're getting four units of, of heating energy out. So that produces a, a really, really energy efficient system that has you know heating and cooling savings in the, I don't know, we will usually quote something like 50 to 75% total energy, uh, heating and cooling energy savings, which is, you know, a, a, a remarkable quantum jump in, in, in energy savings. The other really cool thing that it does is that it fuel switches. So instead of, again, burning our, our, our fossil fuels, our, our natural gas, um, typically here in, in Canada, anyways, in the States, you might be thinking about propane or fuel oil or, or what have you. But instead of burning that natural gas on site, now we are taking electricity from the grid and using that to, to drive this, this heating and cooling cycle. And, and particularly when you're in grids that are, are quote unquote clean grids. So we're talking about the British Columbia's and, and again, this is, I, this is very Canadian focused, I guess, but British Columbia, Quebec have almost entirely hydroelectric grids, super, super clean, right? All, all renewable basically. And even Ontario, which is mostly nuclear, we're probably what's two thirds nuclear, 25% hydro, and then some peaking natural gas plants makes for a very clean grid as well from a, from a carbon standpoint. So when you pair this, this fuel switch with a super clean grid, you end up with a, another, not only an energy efficiency boost, but a remarkable reduction in greenhouse gas intensity because of the, the clean grid that you're now running on. Now this becomes a little bit more challenging to do the, the carbon savings math when you're on the less clean grid. So when we're talking in Canada, we're, we're typically talking about the, the prairie provinces and the maritime provinces that are largely still coal-based um, on their electrical grids. So there's, you know, you're, you're now using that electricity that was ultimately generated via fossil fuels. So you're, you're sort of losing some of the impact 
But as we move to a, a clean grid, which is kind of the long-term plan here for all of the provinces, we're really talking about a future-proof system. So yeah, just to summarize those those two things together there, the energy efficiency and the fuel switching create a, a really large impact on both your energy and your fuel. The other, well, I don't know if we want to touch on the the sort of formula to net zero yet, or if you want to, you're, well, you're think, unfolding it nicely here. We can, I can let you keep going. Well, I, I think just to build on that, you know, energy efficiency, lower operating costs, uh, uh, carbon reductions, and probably the third part to that equation is developers, municipal bodies, provincial bodies, really driving towards zero carbon here and kind of increasing interest and mandated targets for lower carbon emissions from buildings. And we actually haven't touched on this yet, but um, you know, buildings account for an enormous, I, I think, underappreciated amount of carbon emissions nationally, provincially, um, municipally. So we're, we're in Toronto here. Uh, within Toronto, buildings, heating for buildings and electricity for buildings account for literally half of the emissions within Toronto. And that's kind of evenly divided between low-rise residential, making up about half of that half, so about a quarter, and then the mid-rise, high-rise developments in downtown Toronto. So an enormous part of decarbonization will be decarbonizing our buildings. And, and what I really want to highlight that is that in provinces like Ontario, provinces like BC, provinces like Quebec, where the grid is clean, 90% of the challenge is heating. Mm-hmm. Uh, not even cooling, it's heating. Yep. It's heating. Yep. And so geothermal provides one of the few opportunities to almost completely decarbonize the heating from our buildings, which is an enormous part of decarbonizing our economy overall. Totally. So I think those all play together well. Um, and I think it's a big reason why there's a, an increase in, in interest in geothermal now specifically, as opposed to 30 years ago. And I, I think maybe we could talk now about where does geothermal make sense? Because there are a lot of use cases where it does make sense. There are a lot of use cases where there are challenges. So, so where are you seeing uh, interest and, and also where are you seeing the business case uh, line up? Yeah, sure. And maybe before we jump to that, I just want to add a few pieces on the last one, talking about the drive and, and why Geo has been coming into market has largely been driven by those regulatory and, and political and, and policy pieces. Uh, you know, you look at a place like Toronto, where we've got a highly advanced policy requirement, the, the Toronto Green Standard. And it's, you know, you've, you've got kind of the, the carrot or the stick. And, mm-hmm. uh, and unfortunately, it seems like the stick seems to be the only thing that's working, the, the thing that drives it, and and yeah, when you're talking, you know, to to get into the nitty gritties of this, the Toronto Green Standard has a number of different aspects. But one of the the challenging ones that people tend to find uh, are the the kind of umbrella energy uh, targets, and those break down into an energy use intensity, a greenhouse gas intensity, and a thermal envelope uh, slash ventilation measure. And when you switch to a geosystem, you're particularly on the first two on the energy efficiency and the greenhouse gas, you're, you're knocking it out of the park. So when you talk to the really smart energy consultants in town, what they're going to tell you is, is particularly as we, we ramp up and we're going to see uh, next year in 2022 in May, we're going to see a, a increase. They're going to ratchet up the, the target again on the, on the Toronto Green Standard. And what the smart consultants are telling you is that you need to either have a really robust envelope, which is really talking about triple glaze windows, or you're going to have to have a heat pump system. And and envelopes are expensive. And, yeah, and, and so developers, you know, hear that and they and they shake. And 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 so when we can step up to the to the conversation and say, hey, we can we can basically do that heat pump for you at no cost. They go, well, I'm I'm listening, right? So that's got a lot of folks' attention, and and that TGS and that policy stuff is really driving a lot of that market demand. And then the other thing I just want to touch on here is, as I think we're going to start talking about, kind of high performance and, and net zero, maybe more specifically, this is part of that formula. So the way to address the building stock, which is, like you said, you know, in, in cities, we're talking at least half of the GHG emissions is not a secret. We're not, we're not waiting for some secret technology. Everybody always, you know, has the vision of just plastering PV panels all over the buildings, which is part of the formula, but it's, it's going at it backwards, right? Like again, this is, this is a known formula and it's, it's this simple. It's, it's reduce your loads, reduce your building loads. And that means improving your thermal envelope and and reducing your internal, your internal loads, selecting an an efficient mechanical system. And and usually that means a fuel switching uh, scenario where you're going to a heat pump. And the third one is then produce, but you only start producing after you've addressed those those first two. And by and producing, you mean generate renewable energy. Bingo. Yeah. Generate renewable energy. Um, you can either do that on on site, and that's where we start talking about our, our P 
PV systems onto the roof or, or whatever, or buy the clean energy from the grid. And once you start, again, switching to that electric-based system, the heat pump system, that naturally pairs really well with that PV production or, or the you know buying the clean electricity or whatever to actually power your, your system. So the formula to get there is not a secret. It's, it's not that we're, we're waiting for some super PV system or something that's going to get us there. It's a, it's a formulaic approach. It's engineering that we know how to do. It's just a matter of, of implementing it. I hope you're enjoying this episode of the 21st Century Imperative Podcast. We've certainly enjoyed producing it. As you know, 21st Century is a not-for-profit venture, but we still have production costs. So to help cover these costs, we've launched a new online store with all proceeds going to cover production. And we have some great products for you. We have organic fair trade t-shirts and hoodies, as well as non-toxic BPA-free coffee containers, all with great graphics. So if you like the podcast, please think about helping us out by buying a t-shirt, hoodie, or mug for you and one for each of your friends. Head over to our website at tfcipodcast.com and click on the 21st Century Store button. Okay, so why don't we talk now a little bit about where does geothermal make sense and, and, and where is it challenging? Sure. So generally speaking, from an engineering standpoint, from a, a tech standpoint, you can basically get the system to work a- anywhere. Like there, there's no, you know, it's it's not that it doesn't work in Edmonton because it's too cold, or you know, down in in Miami where it's too hot. Like you can you can get it you can get it to work. It's got really good extended range capability, etc. But if there's one thing that I've heard you say over and over again is that it's just it's not just about the technical. Exactly. So where do the yeah, economics yeah. break down? Right. So so then we're talking about like practicality and and, and economics. And what we found is that there is not a lot of additional uptake to do it in a, in a new build. So that's where we're having a lot of success is, is in the new builds where we get a chance to design the system from scratch and, and integrate with the design team and you know tell the architect how much room we need in the basement for our pumps and get the mechanical engineer to design the right in-suite equipment and all that sort of stuff. So that's all good from a, a constructability standpoint, uh, which obviously has has a lot to do with it as well. It's totally possible to put the loops under a building. We, we do that sort of stuff all the time. Some people say, well, I don't have any land. Certainly not necessary, particularly in a dense city like Toronto. We end up putting the loops under the parking structure all the time. That's, that's kind of par for the course these days. The real sort of considerations become, or not even real considerations for for go or no go, but when we start talking about economics, now we're starting to get into, into ground geology and, and hydrology and things like that. And there are certainly some easier places to drill and some hard places to drill. And that's a function of, you know, how how deep are you to the bedrock and do you have to do you have to put casing in versus not and how deep do you go and uh, those those sort of things um, that are that are a little bit in the in the weeds that certainly again, play a factor on the economics, but are not deal breakers. And then the other sort of consideration is just total capacity needed. So a lot of the projects that we're getting involved with are, I would say, sort of mid-rise, high-rise kind of stuff. Uh, the sweet spot, at least the, the market uptake sweet spot, tends to be in kind of the 10 to 20-story range, I would say. And you know that's, I think, just a function of the bigger the building, the higher the investment, and the, the more scared people are of perceived risk. But technically, again, you can you can make it work in, in a 60-story building. There is sort of a, a caveat to that where if you're you know 60 stories on a postage stamp, you're probably going to run out of room within the footprint. So, so the, the sort of math says that the more capacity you want to have over the course of, of the year or, or peak or whatever you want to look at it, the more loop length you need to have on the ground. And you can only you know, drill so deep and we're, we're you know, challenging where that limit is. But if you've got, you know, you have to put these holes 15 or 20 feet apart uh, and you got to make sure that you're clear of all the footings and all of the other structural pieces. So you can end up running out of room under the building. Most of our, you know, just again, to give you kind of a point of reference here, most of the projects that, that we're getting involved with are in that sort of, you know, eight to 20 range. And for the most part, we're, we're not we're not seeing that that capacity. I know everybody always asks that question. We're usually filling up maybe, on average, I would say a third to a half of the of the total um, sort of building footprint. So there's usually plenty of room to to get all the capacity you need. The places where it gets a little bit more challenging, from what we've seen, is in the retrofit world. 
And this is sort of a large piece of the carbon problem that we that we need to tackle, and that it's something that we're we're sort, certainly thinking about and 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 working on. But the reality of of a retrofit is that again, you're you're potentially constrained by space. So if you're in an urban center and you've got buildings surrounding you, your your holes are probably going through your parkade, which more than anything now you're limited by the drilling that you can do. So instead of having you know, a, a 40 foot mast where you can be just plowing through the drilling. We've actually seen some of these products and, and they've got, um, they've got masts that are eight foot or less because they need to get into the, into the parking level. And so that slows your production down from maybe being able to do, you know, a hole or a hole and a half a day per drill to now one drill doing something, uh, taking five days to, to put a hole in. So when you're, when you're thinking about practicality and, and economics, now, if you're, you know, spending five times per hole on, on drilling, your, your economics are going to go up because you have to pay for, you know, the day rate of the drill and the laborer and the fuel and all that sort of stuff. So that makes it challenging. The other, the other challenging place is, um, is, is through the building system, the distribution. If you want to retrofit for, for geo, you often need to go in and look at the water design temperatures and without, you know, getting into all the engineering details, simply speaking, geothermal systems are, are, typically considered low temperature heating systems as opposed to high temperature systems that just have big boilers firing really, really, really hot water. It's kind of less hot water. And so what that could mean is that you might need to go in and retrofit your actual rads or your heat pumps or whatever it is that are, that are in that, you know, in throughout the building, you might need to change some of those things up. Um, and then you're looking at, again, the practicality of when you can execute a major retrofit in, a, in an occupied building, et cetera. So it's it's certainly possible from a technical standpoint to to do the retrofits, um, but but comes with a, a greater practical and economic challenge of of actually implementing it. Um, so, uh, like I said, just to, to tie a bow here, it's certainly something that we are thinking about because from a carbon standpoint, we know that the existing building stock is what are eighty percent of that that number, but certainly more of a more of a challenge than in the new builds. And just for clarity, there you're saying kind of. Use case typically eight to 20, 25 stories. The smaller buildings, you just don't have the load there to justify the capital cost of the geothermal. Is that right? Is that why why it's kind of capped at the lower end? No, I mean, look, you can you can go and put a geothermal system in, in a house that's- yeah, te- that- Technically, but from a best use case perspective, is there a reason why you're not seeing the five-story application? Um, Five-story still okay. I guess there's there's sort of a few- boundaries that that we hit as as a company this is just sort of our internal operation but we're typically looking for as as a company to be either you know drilling or or involved as particularly more as with energy as a service we're usually looking at at kind of a hundred thousand square foot and you know again it kind of comes back to the economics of it a we've got a big engine that we need to get ramped up so we need to hire the engineers we've got you know, lenders that we need to talk to. We have legal fees that we need to pay for. All this sort of stuff that's that's sort of flat, chunky cost. And if we get below a certain threshold of total capital spend and 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 total gross revenue, let's let's say, there, there's just a point where the the practicality of it falls off. Like we we just need, you know, there's there's a thresh a threshold to get out of bed to to sort of speak plainly. So that's that's for us sort of one of the things that that we face. The other thing I'll say from a, a building typology standpoint is that the the economic case for switching becomes more challenging when you don't have a central plant. So in cases where you know we're looking at a an old hotel or something that would have otherwise been using really cheap P tax. Mm-hmm. And for, for listeners, PTAX, package terminal air conditioners, kind of distributed right, right. heat pumps in each of the suites as opposed to a centralized boiler and chiller plant. Right. So when you've just got those distributed units, the business case is tough because you're not like the, a lot of the business cases that you're striking those those big central plant pieces out of your budget, making a, a big chunk of savings both up front and in that long term servicing period, as opposed to, yeah, these like cheap distributed systems that are more inefficient and they they break down more and you got to service them more. But with all that said, you're still having a hard time meeting the economic case. So, you know, we'll, we'll certainly still look at those things, but when we run them through feasibility, it's a harder business case to put together than it is a big building with a central plant. What about uh, commercial versus residential? Um, 
totally interested in in, in commercial um, and and institutional for that matter. Like we're seeing a lot of institutions, universities switching to big low temp systems. Usually, you know, geosystems, geotype systems, and, and public entities typically have more aggressive sustainability mandates. Right? For like sure, city-owned sure. buildings are all targeting net zero energy, net zero carbon. Right. So then the the conversation really becomes an economic conversation, and and you need to understand the business model to sort of know how to approach. So in in the condo business model, energy as a service is like the the one that they all want to talk about, because again, the, the condo developers are putting up the building selling all the units and and getting out as soon as Terion warranty is done right like the, the, the Terion warranty rescission period all that stuff like as soon as they can get out they're out. the other guys the purpose-built rental guys the universities have a have a different investment thesis and they're they're looking at the problem a little bit differently and so when they're holding long term they're now saying okay well if you guys have this business model that that is so attractive if it makes sense for you to invest in, and 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 uh, get the returns, then right. does it make sense for us to do the same? Exactly, and and in that case, they don't have a, a shortage of capital, right? Like all all these, a lot of these guys say, I have a access. lot of access to cheap capital, and especially and, these days, yeah, exactly, and and a lot of people sort of thinking more broadly, like when when some of the rules changed about rent control and things like that, that shifted a lot of people to, and, and, you know, low interest rates, all these sort of things have shifted people to the build and hold business model, as opposed to the condo and kick model. And so, so they say, Hey, this is a, a great business opportunity. I like the technology. I know it's not new. I know you guys can do it. I just want to put my capital up. And so if a build and hold apartment investor wants to do that, then we'll totally partner with them. And, and in that case, you, so this is where you're acting as the developer, right? So you're, you're taking a fee for your services, but you're not Putting up the capital for the exactly actual yeah. Asset. In, in that case, we call that a, a, our design build model. Yep. But, but yeah, we're we're giving them all of the same service, but instead of spending our capital, we use their capital. They retain ownership of the system, but everything else is exactly the same. And so, you know, when you're asking about building type, the building of commercial versus multi-unit res, both work really well with with geo. The thing you need to think about is the business case behind those types of buildings, which is different. And so, you know, our our whole service offering. Um, again, is trying not to be hammer finding a nail, but more about let's go to the market and respond to what the demand is. And so in these cases, you know, the universities, again, they have access to capital and and they just want you to, to drill the holes yep. basically, right? So we're, we're happy to be, be in, involved in that sort of world as well. Are you guys looking at new markets? Are you getting out of Toronto anytime soon? Uh, yeah, so we are we are absolutely looking at new markets. We've partnered with a group called Earth Drilling out of out of Western Canada. And when you say a West, the first thing that would come to mind for me is Vancouver. But are you looking at Edmonton first? Well, so yeah, I mean, there's there's sort of a there's a, a Venn diagram that we need to cover of like where are people building and really where is their tailwinds pushing towards green building? Yeah, um, because you're right like a lot of folks in edmonton are still uh, i don't know like we'll just put a big boiler in or whatever so i would put that intersection i would think vancouver totally yeah so 100 percent. so you're thinking vancouver you're thinking toronto you're thinking you know montreal you're thinking new york you're thinking colorado those those kinds of places that have that sort of venn diagram so we've well, you know without saying too much else we're we've got a few conversations with different folks going in the states because like absolutely want to be sort of top to bottom north america wide yeah. The tough part about BC is that it's a regulated market. Yeah, BC. exactly. So yeah. there's only so much money you can make there. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, that's, that's the thing is every time you get into a new market, you need to, to educate yourself because there's, I mean, the, the easy ones are, are different utility structures. You know, like you said, BCUC, I think is the, the, BCUC, the, term, yeah. the regulated BC market. Building codes are different. Drilling conditions are different. There's certainly some lift that you need to have to get into those new markets. And and just the reality of selling to these types of of folks too is that it's very relationship-based and it's it's somewhat difficult to be a new kid on the block and, and just go in and start doing this type of work. So our approach to, to sort of spearhead into these new markets is, is sort of leading with drillers and folks who are kind of already doing it. And we can say, hey, we're, we're going to get in and we can bolt on this energy as a service package on the projects you're already going to drill. What about clients or customers who are operating in both markets who are in Toronto that might be able to bridge you into new markets? That's what I would imagine to be the easiest entryway in. Yeah. I mean, there are certainly 
Um, I mean, the big REITs for sure. Yes. And some of the developers even have offices across Canada. That is a way to do it. Um, I, I tend to find that those guys still sort of operate locally. Real estate's so regional, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. What about any other technology partnerships that you guys are looking at? You know, the first thing that comes to mind to me is that you're operating so many large electrical infrastructure assets. Yeah. And like you, we kind of talked about this already before that the, in Ontario, you're just bombarded with peak demand charges. It's such a huge part of your utility bill. And I would imagine there might be an opportunity to maybe aggregate those and partner with a, a utility aggregator to have some type of demand response play. Uh, is that on your radar at all? Yeah, it, it is. Like we've, we've had, I've had conversations with folks from the battery world, the BIPV world, the thermal solar world controls and, and like SaaS optimization types. Of, like we've, we've had those conversations with, with a bunch of different folks. The challenge again is that there's every time you want to try to get into a new technology, there's a bunch of lift required to understand, you know, all those things that I just said, the, mm-hmm. how does the tech work? How does, you know, what are the regs that go around this? How do you install it? You need to be in and kind of friendly with the marketplace. And, and I mean, you know, we've, we've looked at that and said, Hey, we're, we are getting already into these talks with these, these guys and we're in early stages. Like let's, can we, can we look at other technologies and have, you know, deploy a similar business model? So you're thinking of actually deploying these other technologies yourself, as opposed to maybe partnering with other. Well, the, I think the way that we would still probably do it is, is, imagine is partner yeah. just from like a, you know, it takes a lot of work to, to get off the ground with those sort of things. But at the end of the day, we get excited by these technologies and we look at them and we're like, this would be great. Wouldn't it be awesome? And so as a business though, we need to sort of take a step back and say, okay, we've got this strategic direction and we, you know, we've only got so many hours in the day and so many resources. And so we need to sort of be disciplined and think about how we want to approach that. Early 2021, we had a bunch of sort of strategy talks as, as a business. And we said, hey, there's, there's stuff going on in the market, COVID related stuff. Are there other technologies or market classes or, or building types or, or physical locations that we should be looking at to try to hedge against market downturn, potential or- market downturn, or like what's going to happen with economy? I mean, fortunately, we, things have continued to be so freaking strong locally here because you know we've got all these fundamentals on our side. But what happens if the worst case occurs and and all of a sudden this condo market falls out and we're very much in on the new build side of things? Like that's very much what our business is around right now. And we looked at it and, and we said, here's all these different things that we could approach. And ultimately we made a, a strategic decision at the beginning of the year to go all in on on geo. And, and so that means going all in as a full service provider, bringing these pieces vertically integrating in the geo world and starting to bring these other services in house and and be the the you know biggest baddest geo services provider across North America is really what we're what we're trying to do here as opposed to you know being like a I don't know you're almost in that case like a private equity company trying to deploy a bunch of different technologies and really all you can do is is deploy capital so again we just kind of made the decision as as a leadership group and said hey we we're going to go all in on this and this is really what we're what we're trying to focus on yeah and at the end of the day you still got a business to run right and and learning a new business kind of takes away from your your that's right. critical path that's right last question for you and then we'll kind of move towards the wrap up you've gone from your like hardcore engineering background as a civil engineer, structural engineer. I think engineering is even in your family. Uh, yeah, my, my dad, my dad was, was also uh, an engineer for a while. And um, and I, I feel like I was destined to become right. from a young age. So you've turned away from your family heritage. <laughs> <laughs> the family business. Yeah. Yeah. And you've really, I mean, you know, when we're talking here, like your, your focus is on developing the business, your focus is on larger macroeconomics and and how to actually implement this, these technologies. And to me, you've, you've moved from being an engineer to a business leader. So my question for you would be, you know, if there's somebody listening here, what skill sets do you think, and you can, you can include technological competence or technical competence in that, but what other skill sets do you think somebody would need to make that same shift or, or to become the business leader for whatever business they want to start? Yeah, I mean, I, I like. Don't get me wrong. There's a place for for technical competency, particularly as a as a foundation to your broader skill set. And you know, I always I say that like when I have kids, they're going to go and be accountants, and then they're going to go work at Xerox and learn how to sell, and then they can go do whatever they want because those are like I feel like if you have those kind of things in your in your tool bag. I, I mean, you know, I, I joke there, but there are some foundational 
skill sets that you should have. And it does, it doesn't necessarily need to be a highly academic area. I mean, that's something we, we didn't really touch on here. And I don't know if you want to meander into there for another half hour, but I spent time in the academic world. I'm, I'm quote unquote published academic, which is pretty meaningless. And based on my, my history, I've taught a number of courses in this sort of world at, uh, at Ryerson and George Brown and McMaster, you know, I've, I've very much been steeped in that world. And, and to this day, I, I don't believe that you necessarily need to be a, a, you know, academic, but that said, you should still have a skill set. So that mm-hmm. skill set could be a, a trade or selling is a, a huge skill set or, and, you know, selling branding, storytelling, all those sort of things. Um, you need some sort of foundation, I believe, to sort of build your, the rest of your career on. And so my sort of foundational skill set was very technical and, and, you know, math, physics, engineering based. And, and like you said, it was in my blood and <laughs> I was destined to do it. But I think my view of the world as I've been in practice and, and done some different things in, in business has really, I would say, shifted in scale. And, and what I mean by that is I spent a lot of time uh, when I was cutting my teeth very much in the weeds and very much talking about the saving percentage points on, I don't know, like let's pick a 85% efficient ERV instead of a 75. And it was, it was very much like the nuts and bolts of knowing, you know, ASHRAE 90.1 and the, the NECB in, inside and out and all that, all that sort of stuff. That was very much where my, my head and, you know, the passive house handbook inside and out. Right. And now I've, I've, I've sort of shifted my view, I would say out of the weeds to, to look at the trees and, and try to look and, and think more at a, at a, you know, 30,000 foot view. And so the things that I pay attention to now have a lot more to do with what's going on with the macroeconomics and, and, you know, what, again, like, well, how, how is this, this person thinking about their business and what is their business model and what is their driver and who, you know, who, which political party is in power because you can see that overnight that can change everything that can change that the entire doing. industry. And, you know, thinking about things like what is this potential inflationary period that we're about to face or potentially face mean for the future of the real estate industry? And like, is the interest rate going to climb and, and follow that? And and those sort of things have a very, very large impact, I feel, on driving the direction of the market that ultimately trickle down into the, the nitty gritty engineering work, but directionally have greater impact and can make a change that's 180 degrees. So instead of trying to navigate the change of a few percentage points, those few percentage points don't matter if the ship is going in the other direction tomorrow. And so those are kind of the the skills, I guess, and the, the interests that I spend more time growing and, and reading about and developing and thinking about to ultimately get to the same end. But via a, a sort of different path. So maybe maybe develop some skill that you can build your platform on. Doesn't matter if it's accounting or engineering or selling. But once you're there, try and figure out how the world works. Totally. Yeah. And 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 where you can fit into it and you know where is the ship heading so that you can, you know, maybe adjust that trajectory in the way that you want to. Right. Yeah, that's that's a, a really good summary. And and I guess just I'll add one more um, piece to the analogy. And maybe we, I can sort of tie this back to the conversation we had had earlier about, you know, is the most impactful person the one who's sort of on the ground, on the front lines, fighting the fight and, and you know, maybe doing the grassroots movement, but also a lot of times, you know, being the one on the in <laughs> on the bleeding edge and 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 getting kicked and, and all that sort of stuff, who again certainly have a place and there is a lot of work you can do there, but well, and at the end of the day, I mean, you need all those people. I mean, you of need course. people on, uh, to, to do the actual work. We write reports. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> has to right. actually drill right. the thing. That's right. And 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 so my you know my 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 point there is like is is that where where change is made or or is change made by you know the person steering the 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 ship? Mm-hmm. And I I would argue that the person steering the ship has a lot more overall impact than the person who's on the front line. And, and you, you certainly do need both. And this is something that I, I sort of wrestle and have wrestled and continue to wrestle with, yeah. but where can you be most impactful in, in making that change? Yeah, you need every link in a chain, but you know maybe some of the links in the chain are a bit bigger or a bit, a bit more important than others. I think we'll just wrap up with a few high level questions and then that'll be it. 
who do you look to as you know people that you've worked with or people that you're generally aware of? Uh, who do you look to as leaders in in your industry, and and especially with respect to kind of decarbonization? Sure. Yeah. I mean, look, like there's there's a lot of smart people that I've worked closely with at at again that sort of project of I don't know I don't know how many names you want to name here, but like I love you can, you can name drop as many as you'd like. like give, give some shout outs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe just because I we were talking recently about like Christian, I think is a, a, a yeah. great thinker, and I, I we've always you know met eye to eye on on intellectual. Uh, pursuit very well, I think, but uh, you know, I, re- I really like the way that he thinks, and he's done some cool stuff in the in the market. Um, our we'll, guy, we'll, li- we'll link to some uh, LinkedIn pages yeah, in, the, in our, the show notes after here. Uh, perhaps everyone's favorite architect friend, Kevin, our architect uh, and and probably engineer, <laughs> probably, uh, engineer in disguise as well. Right, like you know, there's there's people like that, and and you know, there's there's countless other great consultants and engineers doing this work um, that I. I really respect and, and look up to you and have, have learned a lot from frankly in, in doing projects and stuff with those those types of people and, and you know I, I maybe should stop there because I don't want to leave people out and that, just for listeners that's at uh, Kevin Steltzer he works at M4 Architects here in Toronto right those kinds of, of folks I think are, are the ones who are doing really interesting work at you know at the project level and doing that kind of and I mean Christian certainly has spent time in the policy world a lot of time in the policy world. So, so yeah, like at, at the project level and, and at the sort of hands-on level, those guys I really look up to and, and think they're doing some good stuff. At the more broad level, like I, I really look up to thinkers like, you know, Bill Gates and and Ray Dalio and these guys who are are thinking about, you know, all these disparate factors that are, are again, you know, like take Bill Gates, for example, like he's doing some some really interesting stuff. One of his directions is is certainly climate change that he's trying to tackle amongst curing disease and all these different things. He's got his hands in all sorts of stuff. But just connecting totally disparate factors and understanding the technology, but also understanding what it means for the the policy and the, what it means to the people who are going to be living in this reality and what it means for the cost and like all those sort of things, bringing it together. That stuff really, really interests me. And, and Dalio, for example, I mean, he's he's you know not really in the conversation of sustainability. But he's again talking about like what's happening in in the world at a global scale and how are all these things connected, and I think what I really like about that approach is the low hanging fruit or like doing a pretty good job a lot of times. I think I look up to people who who think like that where they don't necessarily over optimize one particular thing, but they say, hey, broadly speaking, if we can tackle this problem over here and address fifty percent of the problem or eighty percent of the problem, as opposed to getting lost in this little tiny circle that's going to optimize us from 1% to 2%, how do we sort of put the the macro picture together and and make those big shifts and address the really big problems? Because if you address those really big problems, you you solve a a lot of the challenge, right? Like taking it back to the carbon problem, you look at the the annual breakdown of, of greenhouse gases. It's like, we need to address the building sector. We need to address the transportation sector, uh, and we need to address the the industrial sector. And if we do that, that's you know seventy five percent of of the problem. Whereas I hear folks say things like, "Well, you know, wh- what about what about air travel? Like, th- surely jet fuel is is causing a huge problem, which which it is, right? We're not we're not denying that. But of the total annual breakdown, it's something like one or two percent, as opposed to like like I said, the seventy five percent that makes up those kind of big other three. So. I, I like people who think about those those sort of big, broad problems, where we can really affect a lot of change, even if the solution isn't isn't perfect. As long as it's it's pretty good, and we can apply it broadly, we're we're gonna we're gonna do a lot of work. Yeah, I think as engineers, we have a a, a temperament to over optimize and to get lost in rabbit holes, right? Yeah. Okay, uh, another one for you. Do you have any any book recommendations for listeners? And it doesn't have to be in the the carbon or climate or decarbonization sphere. Whatever you think would be helpful. Yeah, sure. So I'll 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 maybe give a few here. You can pick the one that you want to talk about here, maybe. But I've just sort of out of interest have have been reading some Taleb lately, Anti Fragile, which is a, a tough read. I will say it. I have to look up. It's a good. I read on a on like an e reader, and luckily they have like the dictionary because I don't know what half the oh tough as yeah okay. It's not tough as in it's like really makes you self reflect and no no no. It's yeah. it's it's you know highly highly intellectual sort of thought that's yeah. that's you know quite quite good, but it's 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 a very highly reading cap, sort of more maybe approachable. Uh, I read a book that I really liked called Vivid Visions 
recently by Cameron Harold, I think is Cameron Harold. Okay. Name. Um and and uh simply put, it's like think about the place you want to be in in you know a three-year period, a five-year period. He does three years typically, but write it down, say here's here's what my my world be that personal, be that work, be that, you know, your your um the future of of whatever sort of thing you can impact. Write it down very specifically. Here's what it looks and feels like, sort of qualitatively, and then work your way back from that and say, okay, well, this is this is where I want to go. I can I can visualize it. I can I can see it, and then working back from that, just think about, okay, well, what's you know, reverse engineer. What are the steps I need to do? What's the what's the tactic that I need to deploy to do that? You know, how do I how do I piece that together from a business planning standpoint or a tactical standpoint or whatever? And then the last one I'll 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 recommend, and these are just sort of a few that I've read in the last you know three to six months that have that have stood out. Another one is called uh, Americana, 400 Years of History Told Through Capitalism. Mm-hmm. Connor, maybe you can help me out with the name here. If you're yeah, I got it here. But... Americana, A 400-Year History of American Capitalism. Yeah, and I'm not even going to try the, the author, and I apologize, but it's it's a, a tough one. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a tongue twister. <laughs> Anyways, lo- loved this book. It was it was like, you know, here's, here's everything from the first ship that crossed from Europe to explore uh, North America through to... You know the the discussion of how you know rice and, and cotton industries in in the south of America conflicted with the sort of metropolitan industry of New York as America was growing, and how those economies and and sort of economic systems clashed, and and ultimately had all these these impacts on the way that that history was shaped, and and all the way up through to steel and oil and the telegraph, and you know up to sneakers and and Steve Jobs and all all that sort of stuff. Really, really, really interesting read. And again, really just sort of a cool understanding of that broad scale of how all those kind of big pieces fit together and without getting, you know, too in depth on one thing, how that that story was shaped kind of through the through the lens of practicality and dollars and cents and capitalism. Yeah, great. And for listeners, all those books will be in the show notes, uh, links to them, links to uh, individuals mentioned and and just any other resources that were mentioned during the conversation uh, will all be in the show notes at tfci.com. Matt, I just want to say thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast and sharing your experiences. Thanks, Connor. It was, uh, it was my pleasure. Thanks, Matt. You can find links to more information about this podcast and to notes about the books and references we've discussed at tfcipodcast.com. And if you like the podcast, please let us know by rating it on the Apple iTunes podcast website and by sponsoring the podcast on our Patreon sponsor page at patreon.com forward slash TFCI podcast. This podcast is ad free and relies entirely on listener support from people like you. So if you find our podcast interesting and valuable, please consider becoming a patron. Your sponsorship will not only help us cover the cost of production, but we will also be spending 50 cents of every sponsorship dollar to plant trees. To do this, we have formed a partnership with Community Forest International, who will not only be planting seedlings for you, but taking care of them to make sure they continue to grow and absorb carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So please head over to the Patreon page and become a sponsor. Until next time, thanks for listening.